0: Welcome to Doing It Best with Eldercare Success, where we explore ways to relieve the stress, exhaustion, and overwhelm that we all face in caring for an aging parent, frail spouse, or partner. Fear, frustration, emotional, and financial strain does not have to be your MO. Stay tuned as we dive into different and new ways of finding more joy together with those that we love and care for, and while keeping our feet solid on the ground hang tight. There is a better road ahead. Hi, everybody. This is Nancy May, and you are here with me and our guest, Kelly O'Donnell, at the Doing It Best with Eldercare Success show. Kelly and her mom, actually, is how we originally met a long time ago, when yeah. Kelly was a lot younger than she is now, and I was also a little bit younger. Kelly is an attorney, and her mom is my accountant, my business <laughs> accountant. And that's how we met. Over the course of the years, of course, her mom, Peg, has been familiar with some of the challenges that I and our family have gone through in taking care of my own parents. Every day is a special day, and it doesn't matter how tough and challenging they are, but you are, the broader aspect is, is legal firms or attorneyship, and uh, attorneyship, it sounds professorship-like, but you're, you've are you got a, a wide berth of experience in the whole guardian and elder care conservatorship area, which is something that we're going to dive into in this show, because Kelly actually recently introduced me to a Netflix show called I Care A Lot. I have to say, before I even knew the full extent of the show and that it was not a true story, but it was based on true stories yeah. and, and research, I was freaking out within like first five minutes. I'm, I'm emailing and texting Kelly like every other word and it's funny because a friend of mine just asked me if I had seen the show, and her husband was doing the same thing to her. Mm-hmm.
1: Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah. I got a lot of those texts myself. <laughs> so if you
0: haven't seen it, I'll put a link in the show called I Care A Lot. It's on Netflix. And it's based on an article that was written out of the New, York, New Yorker magazine mm-hmm. in 2017. I had also read that article a number of years ago and couldn't really complete the whole article in one sitting because mm-hmm. I was angry, incensed is not the word I would say. I was freaked out, angry, incensed all at once. Yes, it's appalling. It's just so you read the article. I'll also put a link to that one too. But let's get into a little bit about what is a guardian or a conservator? And is there a difference between the two? And and how do they work?
1: So it actually depends on the state that you're in. So in some states, a conservator is the same thing as a guardian. Here in Connecticut, they're slightly different, but they, they work to achieve the same purpose. A conservator or a guardian is someone that's appointed by a court to make decisions for someone that's incapable of making their own decisions. A guardian in Connecticut is typically reserved for someone that's under the age of 18 or has an intellectual disability um, and is receiving certain services for that. And it's a little bit more comprehensive than a conservator. A conservator is actually a much more limited version of a guardian, It's typically appointed for adults that can't make decisions. There's two types a guardian of a conservator of the person or a conservator of the estate. And a conservator of the person makes all of your personal decisions. Where are you going to live? Theoretically, can you get married? Although it's very rare that a conservator has that authority. What kind of health care decisions are going to be made? What sort of treatments will you be getting? A conservator of the estate decides how your finances are handled, what gets paid, do your assets need to be sold in order to cover certain costs, things like that. But a conservator only has the authorities granted by the court, and they can be very specific. So you might have a conservator for one specific purpose, conservator of the person solely to decide whether which college you should go to. That's kind of a ridiculous example, but a very narrow set of authorities. They could also be extremely broad if you do need help in every aspect of your life. You might have a conservator of both the person and the estate that makes essentially every decision if you can't make them yourselves.
0: So that's very interesting. I didn't realize that the conservatorship or oversight could be broken into personal issues, health and well-being versus financial management.
1: Yes, and they're absolutely always broken up. So you can have one person that serves both roles, but there's different rules for the conservatorship of the estate versus conservatorship of the person. Now, Is that nationwide or is that just here in Connecticut? No, it depends on the state that you're in. And some states allow conservators or in other states, instead of being called conservators, they might be called guardians. They may be all together in one appointment.
0: When I was first appointed POA and trustee for my parents, and and my parents made that decision with my acceptance, obviously, in in their estate and their care versus my sister, who is younger, I think sometimes it goes to the older anyway.
1: Depends, and we always have that conversation with our clients. The adulthood of the children. Right, (laughs) yeah, just because they're the oldest, they may not be the best one for the role, but that does still seem to be tradition.
0: In our particular family, I think it worked out fine. My sister has, has a child. She takes care of that. But I don't have children. I have my husband, which, take that. I will I'll I may have to edit that one out. <laughs> but in any case, when I was looking through the materials originally, or the trust and the POA, durable POA, this was out of Florida, I noticed the term Guardian and so i was actually i guess technically in those in that time which was now probably about 15 years ago appointed my parents guardian i'm not sure they actually understood that themselves mm-hmm. other than that they trusted me with their care and well-being and making end of life decisions when that mm-hmm. had to be made yeah. as well as you know of course they also had all those other things including the the dni and the dnr and mm-hmm. well my very my important. dad didn't have a dnr which was a very interesting dilemma mm-hmm. but that comes on to another show. (laughs) So let's talk a little bit about what I'll call the freak out scenario on Mm -hmm. the whole guardian or the conservatorships. And I know a, a former court appointed guardian, as well as a judge who has had to battle this issue with her own mother and seeing what's happening in the court systems in different states that can be very incestuous. How have you seen that play out in your own experience?
1: In Connecticut, I'm actually really pretty confident in our conservatorship system and I have seen it from all angles. I've seen it from the institutional side, the individual side, the disputed side. I have been a conservator. The system in Connecticut is extremely protective and so this, you know, the situation that was depicted in the Netflix movie, I care a lot, is is really nearly impossible in Connecticut. At least in Connecticut. So if you
0: care about your parents and you don't want to have an issue for that, then maybe move them to Connecticut if you're not here. Maybe.
1: Great state to retire to, if you like the snow.
0: (laughs) And the taxes.
1: (laughs) Yeah, we don't talk about that.
0: (laughs) We had actually talked the other day and you were explaining to me how in this particular state, each each region is, is broken up into smaller territories mm-hmm. for the whole conservatorship oversight in the court mm-hmm. system, which makes it almost clicky, for lack of better mm-hmm. description, among the guardians and the judges and I would imagine the attorneys mm-hmm. and the families who may not necessarily be aware of this. Mm-hmm. Does that make the whole process better, or is it more challenging to make sure you get the right care?
1: So I actually think that it makes the process a little bit better because it would be so difficult to develop relationships with every single probate court in Connecticut in order to build a practice large enough to have enough wards or conserved persons under your care to make the kind of money that the movie was depicting. In Connecticut, we've got, I want to say, upwards of 60 probate districts. And so that would be a lot of different districts in which to make those relationships. There's far more people involved. And in each case, there's a court-appointed attorney, which is, you know, the court-appointed attorney's role in Connecticut is very important and has extremely absent in the Netflix movie and in the New Yorker magazine article. So the court-appointed
0: attorney is the one that allows somebody to have a voice if they can't come forward? Mm -hmm. How does that work?
1: Yeah, so when there's a conservatorship hearing, there's a lot more people in the room. There's the judge. There is the proposed conservator, who we saw in the movie as Marla. There's the conserved person's attorney, who is court-appointed just to represent that person. And then there's usually the petitioner, so whoever suggested that this person needed to be conserved. And the court-appointed attorney's job is to advocate for whatever the person subject to the petition wants. If they can't determine what the person wants, then they sort of look at the person's best interest. But if the court-appointed attorney's client, the subject of the petition, says, I absolutely do not want a conservator, this is ridiculous, and I want to be at that hearing, that court-appointed attorney is obligated to make sure a hearing does not go forward without their client present and has to advocate very strongly for why they should not be conserved.
0: They're mentally strong and competent. They may not physically strong, mm-hmm. but how do they handle their own judgments and decisions, correct?
1: Exactly. And it would be their responsibility if they thought the physician's evaluation that would be submitted typically with a conservatorship application, that another physician would evaluate the person in order to contradict that report. Mm-hmm. So
0: one of the questions that I've got is, this is I'm, I'm thinking this whole system is geared predominantly towards people who are living at home or independent in some way, shape, or form, and then all of a sudden become
1: incapacitated. It's really designed for people that haven't prepared. There is no reason a person ever needs a conservator if they have prepared and taken all of the steps, for example, that you outline in your book in order to make sure that their paperwork is in order. They would never become subject to the conservatorship system. So
0: that's making sure you have a trust, you have a will, or a will, you have all the proper documents, POA, durable power of attorney, depending upon mm-hmm. what the state is. All your end of life decisions are done. The book that she's referring to is How to Survive 911 yeah. Medical Emergencies, <laughs> which you can get a link at the, at the end of the show notes as well. But even having those conversations are very difficult for a lot of families. My concern is so you've gone in, let's say, to an assisted living or a care facility. And then all of a sudden you run out of assets mm-hmm. and you may not have family and the, and the facility doesn't want you anymore because now you're a liability to them financially. Mm-hmm. Does this come into play in those particular situations? I'm thinking like get kicked out on the street,
1: right? I believe there are laws against that in Connecticut. I don't believe we can be Or moved into like from- a dumpy
0: place as opposed to the really nice ritzy places.
1: So if we think about a situation where someone is in a nursing home, they've completely run out of their assets, but they still have all of their faculties, then they wouldn't be eligible for a conservatorship application. The home might not be happy that they're not getting paid, but they would have to pursue other routes in order to collect So the
0: conservatorship that. is predominantly geared towards those that are not mentally able to make their own best judgment decisions. Absolutely. Yep. This brings up a whole nother story or concept because we said earlier, if you have not made your wishes obvious as far as how you want those final days to play out. So do you want to be intubated? Do you want all extreme measures to be taken to make sure you survive to 120 and more? That was actually my dad's wishes. So I, uh, you know, my jo- my, I don't want to say you know flippant joke, but it, it somewhat was, is that I fought like hell to the very last moment that we couldn't, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. that's exactly what we did because I knew mm-hmm. what his wishes were. Mom right. was a whole other story where she said, if she ever got to this point in her in her life where she had de- she did have dementia, shoot me. <laughs> Now, you're going you're gonna to think that I'm really crazy now, because when she had a massive brain hemorrhage, and that was basically the, the towards the end of her life, I mean, she had mm-hmm. about 10 days left, the ER doctor had come into her room and said, so what do you want to do? And I said, well, if my, my mom were here, she would say, shoot me. And he looked at me stunned. <laughs> he said, we legally can't do that. <laughs> but you understand the conversation, right? Yeah, and right. the generation, especially. Mm-hmm.
1: So uh, things are a little different today. <laughs> yes. Although I would say we do have all of the tools in place in Connecticut, for example, if that was your wish. I mean, no, we we can't. And that's becoming new. I mean, that, that is new. Allowing,
0: to, allowing for the termination of life mm-hmm. without just taking out a tube mm-hmm. to actually... Kevorkian style, we'll call right. it,
1: right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it was very difficult up until just a, about 18 months to two years ago. It was very difficult if you were dying. And we've seen this situation before, right? Where mom or dad is very ill, they're at home dying, and it's their desire to die at home yep. with hospice care. And then a, a family member or a friend comes in, sees what's happening, is very upset by it, and calls 911. And if they didn't previously have what's called medical orders for life-sustaining treatment, Mm -hmm. or a MOLST form, nine out of ten times, EMS was required to transport them to the hospital, and then it's really, you know, do they even survive the inpatient admission? Or even the transfer. Or even the transfer. Right, and that's not at all what they wanted. Now we do have forms in Connecticut. You know, the lime green form, you stick it on your refrigerator, medical order signed by your doctor. Lawyers can't help you with it. Please don't ask me to. I have zero authority. But that's now an option to allow people, if that is their decision, to put that plan in place.
0: That's very interesting. So it's a slight jump in our conversation, but in at least in Florida, and I'm, I understand in other parts of the country, that if once you are admitted into hospice care, even at home, versus let's say a hospice care facility or in, in the hospital under hospice, you are not supposed to call nine one. It's not that you can't call nine because, of course, nobody's going to stop you from right. dialing or maybe stop you from dying either, but at some point that's going to happen. But if that happens, what's the recourse? Is hospice, do you know if hospice just actually stops
1: at that point if you dial 911 and say, oops, you know, we shouldn't have done that? My understanding is hospice continues to provide the care that they've been instructed to, but they, they can't interfere with A EMS fight. showing up, yeah. you know, yeah. that nobody wants to get in that fight. Yeah,
0: so this, there's one story that I have in our local town or the next town over from us, where I had heard of, probably about two years ago of a gentleman who had had a fall in an accident, an older fellow, and didn't have any family, and was taken to the hospital. And the town stepped in, apparently, mm-hmm. to take his home away from him because they deemed that he was not able to take care of himself. They sold the house to take care of his medical care. And another individual that I'd heard about, uh, this is sort of you know through a, an inside mm-hmm. story, I was f- infuriated that this had happened. So mm-hmm. I kind of think of a milder case of I care mm-hmm. a lot, where somebody in the town probably thought they were doing good mm-hmm. and stepped in and basically left this poor older gentleman a World War II vet homeless. So, I mean, this was obviously, I'm going to guess, before something where the, the structure to mm-hmm. inhibit that type of action from happening, especially mm-hmm. in a town where mm-hmm. everybody sort of knows each other in, in you know New England. Mm-hmm from
1: happening it does can
0: that happen again here that would no? have to
1: be a pretty unusual situation i mean you know if there is a situation where someone goes into the hospital they cannot go home for whatever reason because their activities of daily living can't be met it just sure. wouldn't be a safe discharge for them to go home so they need to go into some sort of assisted living or rehabilitation facility but they don't have the assets to go or they don't have coverage under medicare medicaid but they do have a house At the end of the day, if they need the care and they need the finances to pay for the care, a court would likely order that their house be sold. Mm -hmm. It can never happen quickly. Courts are very, very loath to sell property, particularly homes, if there's any other option. And so you do have the ability to qualify for Medicare or Medicaid. You know, the conservator will fill out that application. And honestly, that is one of the biggest benefits of having a conservator is that the professional conservators, at least the ones that I've interacted with the most, they know how to do these applications by heart. And they are not easy applications in order Mm -hmm. to get state benefits. And so if you can qualify for state benefits and keep the home, they're required under law to make sure that they do that. The law in Connecticut is that the conservator must always take the least restrictive action, so to preserve what you wanted.
0: What are some of the boundaries where the checks and balances happen to make sure a conservator really doesn't go uh, beyond an individual's wishes, even if that individual may now be someone in, in the early stages of dementia mm-hmm. or Alzheimer's.
1: So any major decision like that, you know, relocating someone, um, selling their house, or selling any assets at all. As a conservator, I had to sell an armchair and a lift chair that my ward no longer could use. Uh, I right. bedridden. I needed a court order to do that. It was, you know, less than $800. Just to even sell a chair? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So selling real estate is significantly bigger, more complicated. Yes. And even changing someone's residence because there's concerns. And this comes up in the New Yorker magazine article that, you know, conservators were pulling people out of nursing homes where they had lived and had friends and putting them in, you know, dumpier homes where they had relationships. In Connecticut, you can't move someone unless you go to court and get permission from the judge to move them and their court-appointed attorney gets notice of that and they're required to meet with their ward and have that conversation before the hearing can even go forward.
0: So Connecticut sounds like a pretty good um, bail of protection that's out there for older folks, which is great. But a lot of this is happening down south, where there's not as much of it, and there is a larger population Mm -hmm. of those who are over, I hate to say that over 65 is older. (laughs) Um, I'm not there yet, but I remember joking with my husband one day, and they talked to and referred to an elderly gentleman of 65 in the news. I'm like, WTF, you have got to be kidding. Please, I'm not too far from there. No, it's
1: the new 45. 65 (laughs) is the new 45.
0: I don't know. I was thinking closer to 30, but... (laughs) What are some of the ways that families can have these discussions when in fact there is a person in the family that becomes the quote-unquote guardian or conservator?
1: I think it's always important to have these conversations early and to be upfront about what the situation is. So how do you broach it with a parent?
0: So the other day I was talking to somebody. And mom, said, we have to talk about this. Right. You, you, know, you know, you're like, <laughs> the end is near. Uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. But somebody actually told me the other day in in the area, and they said, you know, I got an adult child. My mom's starting to have some issues. I'm still gainfully employed. I can't stop. But I haven't taken care of these issues for myself and having the conversation with my children. How do I open the conversation with my mom? Mm-hmm. Besides saying, Mom, we've got to talk about this, or Dad, mm-hmm. you You know, you're DOA. (laughs) My father, in his early 90s, one day told me he was SOL. And I said, how did you know that one? You never (laughs) cursed a day in your life. (laughs) Although SOL initials Mm -hmm. are not cursing. Mm -hmm. But I had to laugh. So all of a sudden, he was SOL without me, which I guess that was true. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm But I appreciated the recognition. But this was something that we talked about a lot in our family very, very early on mm-hmm. since i was a I was a kid because I had a younger sister who passed away when I was very young, mm-hmm. and so there was a lot of death in the early days of my first ten years of life in our family, and I think that's probably why our parents brought it up to my sister and I knowing mm-hmm. that we would be safe mm-hmm. if anything happened to them. Mm-hmm. but not every family is like that. so what do you suggest and just sort of popping the question, or do you apply them with alcohol first?
1: Well, (laughs) Well, that could work, Um, although I wouldn't recommend it if you're going to get real deep into the conversation. (laughs) But I think it's helpful to focus first on documents that don't have any importance at the moment, right? So, So for example. Powers of attorney, designation of healthcare representatives, that one is extremely important. The person that the hospital looks to, to make your decisions if you're incapacitated. If, mom, you're knocked out in a car accident, you can't speak for yourself, Mm -hmm. what do you want me to tell them? Right. Exactly. And who should be in charge? I mean, I'm 32. I have all of those documents just because something could happen. Yeah. None of them affect my daily life because none of them come into play unless I'm incapacitated. But accidents happen, right? Accidents happen, right, right. And I'm very risk averse. So I like to have all that. You're in I would hope you're risk averse. <laughs> <laughs> right. So those documents are sort of a good a good start. The healthcare, you know, a living will or designation of health care representative can include an advanced designation of conservator. And if you do that in Connecticut. The court is going to appoint that person conservator unless there's a really good reason not to. So if you start with that and the trusts and you can always link it to the estate planning, which, Mm -hmm. you know, is an equally difficult conversation because of the financial aspect of it. But they're really intertwined because, you know, if you wind up in a sad situation where you do need a higher level of care and you don't have insurance coverage for it and things need to be sold, where there tends to be tension is when one sibling says, well, we've got to sell the house so that mom can go into rehab or into this assisted living facility. And the other kids are going, well, wait, that's my inheritance. right? And so if you can have those conversations early and be extremely transparent about it. Mm -hmm. I've met a lot of folks that think that their parents have millions and millions of dollars in the bank. They're going to be fine. They'll be totally provided for. And after eight months, they're looking at bending down so that they can get Medicaid coverage because assisted living and rehab is really expensive.
0: Well, and even living at home full-time is expensive. There is a call I got from a fellow down south, who we have a personal connection with, and he said, Nancy, I don't know what to do myself. Mom's coming on with dementia and it's becoming more difficult, and I was told it's going to cost me about $8,000 to keep her in a home with Mm -hmm. an Mm aide. And I said, yeah, Craig, you know, this is, we're talking full-time care. We're not talking... Part time care, which Mm -hmm. will cost less. Mm -hmm. And there are ways to manage it. But just the realization of even the least expensive care, unless you do it all yourself, which can also be a financial burden if you have to leave your job. Right. And that is
1: my understanding. And I am not an expert in the area, but my understanding is that it is far more expensive to stay in the home with care than it is to go to an assisted living facility.
0: Well, but the quality of care is different too. Very different. Very different. Full out, I am not a fan of assisted living facilities. We've had experience with several in the past, including with friends. And the type of care that you get in an assisted living facility or a care facility is not 24-7 full-time care with somebody there by your side. Right. Where at home, which is what we did with my mom and dad, Mm -hmm. there was always somebody there Mm 24-7. So it was a very different environment. There was nobody ever felt, there was never an issue, mm-hmm. thankfully, mm-hmm. but it is, it's a different level of personal, hands-on is not the right word, but personal attention.
1: Absolutely, and yeah. we know that it's so much better for folks, especially as they start to have cognitive issues, being in a familiar place, around familiar things, it makes a huge difference, but unless you have everything set up before someone gets sick in order to put that into place, sure. you're going to have a really hard time getting someone, you know, you discuss this in how to survive 911. How do you get someone discharged from the hospital back yep. home without having all of that in place? And who who do you even call? Right, you know that is unbelievably difficult, um, and that is why so many folks I think do wind up in assisted living facilities because it's just easier.
0: When you talk about the conservatorship or the guardianship, and let's say. I'm an adult child here in Connecticut, which I am. And in, in a particular case, my parents—or let's say, you know, my parent might be in California—are the rules for handling this different? Would I be a conservator for them in the state of Connecticut where I reside, or where they reside? My parents were residing at the
1: time. How does that work? It's where they reside. So okay. if they're living in California, you would be appointed by a court in California. Um, and we do see folks make that mistake where uh, they come to Connecticut with an order from another state and. They're just no good unless they're drafted very particularly. You have to convert it to the state in which the person lives. So
0: like having a will. If you were going to move from a different state, you, move, you change over all the wills as, as well. And yeah. Mm-hmm. Is there any sort of, oh my God, I'm screwed mm-hmm. scenario? <laughs> I'm thinking, no other way, I'd be a lot more rude but I'm not going to. On the whole Gu- conservatorship guardians scenarios, that that you can explain or describe in a story that really brings this point home on how important it is to make sure it's set up in case you need to invoke the mm-hmm. whole Mm -hmm. oversight within your family.
1: Right. You know, I think the biggest issues that I've seen have been where folks have zero planning done and they come into the hospital in a situation where they don't have any paperwork. You know, we may not necessarily even know much about them. We don't know how to get in touch with family members, so we don't know what they want. And if someone doesn't, you know, sort of come to, how do you ever get that information? They become a Jane or John Doe. Exactly. So those are very bad situations that you want to avoid. The other really bad situation is where you haven't communicated with your family what you want done. And you have, say, three or four children, maybe a spouse, and they can't agree on what's Mm -hmm. going to happen. You know, We've seen a lot of situations where all three kids are fighting over who should be the conservator for mom or dad. They all think different things should happen. This one doesn't want the sister to be conservator because she's going to bring mom home and she's going to pay herself to take care of mom. And Mm -hmm. it turns into a financial fight. And then what's really best for mom and dad sort of... It's the loss
0: of the ultimate goal, which is quality of life and joy for for your parents and, and ultimately for yourself too, because it's it's hard work.
1: Exactly. Yeah. It, it's yeah. not easy for anyone when you get into that situation. And so if you can prevent getting into that situation, that is by far the best solution. I
0: had a, a personal story, although it wasn't necessarily guardianship or conservatorship related, where I got a call one day clear out of the blue from an attorney out in California that I didn't know. And I thought, okay, you know, when you get a call, strange call off the phone from an attorney, you immediately, like, my ears go up. was like, mm-hmm. what have I done? <laughs> nothing, nothing. Promise. But it turned out that she was close to a cousin of mine that I didn't really know through an, an uncle that I loved dearly. He had passed away many years ago and his wife. But he had been be a bit of a recluse in his later years in life and had a health issue which he refused to go get help with. Mm-hmm. Apparently he died and had been found, this is a little gory, but found 10 days later on in mm-hmm. his home because a neighbor realized that he hadn't come to pick up the mail. He was you know, didn't see him around what was going on. And so the attorney, friend of the family, was looking for family members to see mm-hmm. who would take over to manage the estate, mm-hmm. which, and they didn't have any, you know, will that they could find. They eventually did find a will after drilling out a safe deposit box that they found but it was it was a very interesting experience to go now find all the closest nearest relatives mm-hmm. because my aunt who was ill couldn't handle it my mom who was considered also the next closest relative couldn't do it because she had dementia and it then it fell to me mm-hmm.
1: right right and you know that's the number one thing that i have seen attorneys get yelled at in court for is not taking the time to track down family members, particularly in conservatorship or guardianship. Well,
0: they cases. called me to say, "Who is everybody? Can you find?" Them? I was
1: like, "I don't know where they are." Mm-hmm. Right. If you don't have an address or a phone number, you had better be able to explain why. At least I was
0: able to find everybody, but mm-hmm. even still, it was uh, it was a way to get connected with long lost cousins. That, yeah. Not in the best way, but it was. Yeah. It was an education process. Yes,
1: and that can be that can be a very difficult process. Um, we've been through it here and. There are people that make a lot of money tracking down family members for that exact I reason. I know a few <laughs> of those myself.
0: Let's sort of wrap this up. I'm going to suggest that, and correct me if I'm wrong, that if you haven't had these conversations with your mom or dad or if you were the adult who have not had these conversations with your kids and are uncomfortable talking about it, just start with the very simple basics of a POA, you know, what happens if you can't talk for yourself in in your hospitalized. What are your end-of-life wishes? Just have a discussion about it and don't make a big deal out of it. And then maybe create a plan as far as on a calendar when you're going to move things forward to a more aggressive stage of conversation. Mm-hmm. Include a separate conversation with your attorney when mm-hmm. necessary, understanding the rules and regulations of the state that you live, which is important. If you might be willing to or interested in moving to another state, how that's going to impact everything financially mm-hmm. and legally. And then bring in your financial advisor to have that conversation. conversation. Conversation as well because it's going to have to include your assets at some point. Yes. Or what to do with them. You may not necessarily have Mm -hmm. a full accounting of your assets, Mm -hmm. but certainly an understanding of where they are or what you want done with them in case they need to be liquidated,
1: right? Right. What are your options going to be? What are you looking at? You know, are you conserving? Should you be spending down? Are you going to be totally fine? Or are you taking that cruise till they say it's, you know, less expensive to cruise on the good ship lollipop, whatever it is? (laughs) I have seen that. Yeah. It sounds pretty good. And I would say, also talk to talk to any medical provider for your parents that you have a good relationship with. You know those are conversations that they can help with and check in. Right? You know if you have those conversations ten years before mom or dad get there, things may have changed and you want to know if, if they're just even knowing
0: who their medical providers are
1: is- also very helpful. And for your medical for their medical providers to know who you are may make them significantly more comfortable. For example, living in the community, knowing that they have a support system. That's what doctors factor into what is a safe discharge plan. It's
0: helpful for the doctors to know who. You- you are as the adult children coming in, that you just don't come in as a stranger, yeah. which has been interesting experience in the past. This has been great, Kelly. If there's anything more that we should know, speak now or forever, hold your peace, since you're an attorney. <laughs>
1: prepare, be prepared. And that's really all that you can do. We're all going to be at that stage of life at some point. though. So. if we're lucky and it, just, if we're lucky. it doesn't happen unexpectedly, right? Yeah. Whether it's a hundred or 120, we're all headed in that direction. So, you know, being prepared is the best thing you can do. So for those who
0: are listening, uh, there's going to be a document that you'll get attached in the show notes that just explains all the definitions of conservatorship, guardianship, different types and forms that are out there. There's simple discussions or definitions. That's all they are. You can take that document and information, take it to your attorney, take it to your doctor, take it to your financial advisor and get the best advice from those that are working with you. And just make sure these people really understand the difference between elder care related issues and regular daily life issues when you're younger, because it is different as you reach a certain age. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure, Kelly. Thanks very much. And we'll see you all soon. Bye bye. This show is sponsored by Care Manity, the publishers of How to Survive 911 Medical Emergencies, a step by step guide before, during, and after. For your own personalized free file of life, go to www.howtosurvive911.com. All trademarks, brands, and comments are not intended to be substitutes for medical, financial, or legal advice. Please consult a medical, legal, or financial professional for issues relevant to your own personal situation. This show is produced by Caremanity, LLC. All rights reserved. Copyright 2021, Caremanity, LLC.